Hi, this is Michael Azarad, the editor-in-chief of The Talk House, the website where smart, notable musicians write about new music. Welcome to the first Talk House podcast. Since it's The Talk House, we figured we'd have a musician interview a musician. Hamilton Lighthouser was the frontman for the late great band The Walkmen, and now he's made an excellent solo album called Black Hours. He'll be in conversation with the excellent Carrie Brownstein, who's played guitar in Slater Kinney and Wild Flag, and co-stars in the TV show Portlandia. We put these two interesting people together, and sure enough, they had an interesting conversation that only two musicians could have. Here it is. Uh, so I guess I don't. I mean, Mike Michael didn't say like I needed to do one of those official intros, like. But I guess I could, we should introduce ourselves. Okay. Right. Okay. I think so that this sounds is good. Yeah. Okay. So this is Carrie Brownstein. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and today I'm talking to Hamilton Lighthouse. Hamilton. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, <laughs> you should do it. Let's all start over. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and today I'm talking to. Hamilton Lighthouser. Hi, I'm in New York City. <laughs> Hi. Uh, um, so we're here mostly to talk about your your album, and I think we're sort of allowed to talk about whatever, but you've played at Joe's Pub recently, right? Mm-hmm. And I listened to that show, and everyone's sitting, um, yeah. which I, I guess is normal. How is that for you? Is that um, How often have you played in front of a, a seated audience? We've done uh, it over the years. I, I really like it, actually, because, I mean, we've done so many sort of rock shows in our lives where there's all the guys down front are drunk and, you know, jam- slam dancing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's there's something dignified about I feel like when everybody's sitting down, your slow songs really take on a lot more weight and become a lot more fun and palatable, maybe. Because maybe when you're, like, standing there in the crowd, you don't want to listen to the, you know, the slow stuff. Um, and that's always like sort of the more fun stuff for me to play. Maybe just because I've done a lot of the other stuff in my time. But I'll ask you something when you're creating a set list for a festival or f- when the context is yeah know, right totally. or theater yeah and or that, like 3 30 at Lollapalooza or something like that you gotta you gotta cater to your audience exactly and when you do put the slower songs which I do think are more rewarding to play than to listen to sometimes you have that awkward consciousness I guess when you're playing knowing you feel like you're, it's taking too long, even though it's a song that you love. Right, totally. Um, That's just like, yeah, like panic or something. Yeah. So as you approach, so that was the first thing you noticed when you when you played these shows. Do, do you think that you felt, did you feel like there was a different sense of time and kind of um, an allowance for a certain kind of feeling or space that you haven't had in a while? I feel like with this record, I, I, I was really happy with the way that we, we, I feel like we have a different amount of dynamics. And the, uh, my, the record I did before this, I felt was, was, I really liked, but it was flat and loud the whole time. And I feel like this record has a lot of ups and downs and allows for a lot of different playing and tons and tons of instruments. I mean, I had 14 people up there on the stage with me the other night and they almost covered all the parts. 
and mm-hmm. it, it really makes for like a different everything feels different i mean it, it, i i think that the the slow stuff really works and the um and the like you know sort of rich sound that comes from just like having a few different things playing was like the most fun thing for me In the past, with the Walkman, with the Walkman, were you? Did you ever have to sacrifice, you, you know, choices that you made in the studio in order to facilitate that live, you know, in terms of subtraction or well, we did this overdub or we had these strings and now we're not doing that live? And do you feel like you don't have to do that now with you know fourteen people? Well, I mean, I don't know how long I'll be able to afford to pay fourteen people. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's always a problem when you're in a band where the paycheck splits five ways, mm-hmm. you know? Like, how are you going to also pay five string players and stuff like that? Um, I always felt like we did a pretty good job of recreating our studio sound. I mean, we were the band of five guys. We didn't use all that many overdubs. And we used to bring a horn section on tour with us. And a lot of the time, to cheap out, we would um, hire horns on Craigslist from every town that we went to. Which is kind of awesome. <laughs> It was kind of awesome sometimes, uh-huh, but... and sometimes the people were not so awesome. Sometimes the people didn't actually know how to play the horns, and they showed up sort of saying that they did know how to play the horns. So would you have me? But it was fun, like you know, night to night to see what would happen, Do... and it's pretty cheap. Yeah. Know? Did you have musical notation for them, or would you say, "Here, listen to this song, learn this part, come to our sound check"? I, th- I think at the beginning we didn't even have. Um, we didn't have sheet music or anything. Mm-hmm. I think we showed up and we we were just so we had no idea what we were doing, and we would just like sort of say, "Can you play this note and play this note?" And here we go. We don't have time for a sound check. Let's get up there and do it. So it wasn't exactly fair to the people. Right. But you you know we, sometimes you get some real aces and they get up there and and if people were ever like fans or something, they'd heard the song and they knew how to do right. it. So it was fun. But one time in like Gainesville, I remember these two kids showing up. And we were sound checking, and they just didn't. These two college kids just—they were looking for like you know, fifty bucks or whatever it was. Like that's why they were there, and they just couldn't play it. And the show came around, and we got up on the stage, and they just never showed up again. They just never came to the show. But they had an ad so on. Like did that. they have an ad on Craigslist, or did you put up an ad on Craigslist? No, we would post it in all the towns we went to. Okay, so it wasn't like there wasn't like you know horn player for hire, and then you guys would seek them out. You act, you solicited. That makes more sense. Yeah, we we yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, it's a flawed plan. Sort of yes, flawed but clever, charming. Um, Thanks. <laughs> when we, it comes to cheaping out, I feel like is when our imaginations really took off. Bands are weird like that, you know. Like you think of people that have to make consensus decisions and it's so stifling I think um, because mm-hmm. basically no has the most power so right of course you can have everyone it's infectious it's, exactly and it's so frustrating because it's never majority it's just the one person feels uncomfortable or doesn't want to do something and then that informs you going forward and, yeah, or they haven't had lunch yet. <laughs> right. And that's yeah, it. it can be arbitrary. Like low blood sugar, got in a fight with someone on the phone the night before, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we're not doing that. And and mm-hmm. that that can be a very 
frustrating dynamic. So now you're not in that situation. <laughs> do you no. like be? <laughs> do you like having? Do you like sort of being the boss, or is there something about it that now feels like there's not enough limitations? Because sometimes those limitations, having to sort of buck up against something and clarify your decisions. Totally. Well, you know, I really like working with other people. That's the sort of ironic thing. I really do. And on this record, I did work with other people. Mm -hmm. And I, I think maybe for me, it wasn't necessarily about just escaping other people and being my own boss. It was more about maybe just escaping our particular situation and our lineup and what I felt was like kind of our tried and true machine which I really liked and I, all the guys are my best friends and actually my family and we all get along great but maybe we sort of saw it as like which way do we go from here we, we've done so many records together the five of us and we've called in a producer now and we've sort of tried all these different things and I didn't we all live in different cities so I you know sometimes you're just writing a song by yourself or, or over email with one other guy or something and you, you think why would I bother you know this is done why would I bother if I want to finish this and make it different, I should do it. I, I, I might should, maybe it should just go into an outside place. So that's sort of why this, why we're doing it the way we are now. I think sometimes when you can see the end, like when you're, like if you're writing a song for a band that you've been in, you you sort of know what the process is. And and even if you are in your most sort of creative or the, feeling the most experimental, you know it sort of goes down these certain like channels. And so I think, mm -hmm. yeah, it really opens things up when you don't know the end game for something. And it, seem, it seems yeah, like exactly. you could take more risks. Um, which I guess brings me to reading about this record and listening to it. It, it does seem like you are listening to, you know, artists that I would, you know, categorize as, as crooners, uh, whether it's like Sinatra or Nat King Cole. Did you purposely listen to different music or was it just that you allowed yourself to sort of bring that world into these songs? I think I got I, I had been listening to that stuff for a while, but I think when I got one of those MIDI keyboards, I'd never had that before. I know that everybody has them in the world to make electronic music, but I just got mm -hmm. my first one. And I, it, knowing that I, it was me and this microphone and and this eight track, and knowing I had to bring this from beginning to end, I realized I got to get into writing all the instruments. In the Walkman, I didn't do that. You know, we had all the guys mm -hmm. working together. And the, here, I. I started writing string parts I thought you know I, I got I, I don't want to do big bass and drums to start I don't want to rock I don't want to I don't want to put big guitars on everything to start out so you do a song like that first song on my record 5am is like a vocal string song and then the band and everything falls in at the end and that was just I didn't even know if the band was ever going to happen or not but it's it it it, it, it all started from a point where I thought I, maybe I can make non-rock and roll music if it's just me maybe I can make non-rock and roll music like you know Frank Sinatra don't chase the crowd cause I'm right there is just this levity on on this album and kind of just like an openness and I would almost characterize it as like this gratefulness. And I also heard it in the in the live show too. Like just 
like that you're really approaching something that feels new and and sounds exciting to you well good yeah i mean that's what i was that's what I, it did sound exciting to me it felt fr- like you know a f- free but not in the way that i i felt uh, you know uh, being with the band i was always happy with the band but there's there was a feeling when you're exactly what you're saying like that there was a inevitability or like a you, you knew where something was gonna go if you went into the same way Like you said earlier, you you overwrite, um, which is not a bad thing. But you had 17 songs for this record, right? And you put 10 on. Uh huh. Yeah, that sounds. Yeah. And where was that decision based on? Like, here is a cohesive group of songs, or was it here is a diverse group of songs? Both. I wanted it to under no circumstances be long because I figured as a first record, you just don't want to. You, you got to just have a clear, concise you know, package of what you're delivering. But I also wanted to make sure I felt like we had a lot of different dynamics on this. And I wanted to make sure we got all our ideas on there. There's four songs that are on the bonus disc that you can get when it comes out. There's like a two record version. And I feel like any of those four really deserve to be on the record for one reason or another. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. fit them all on. Um, so those four, the other ones are just, you know, right. Gone. The week, the week kids. But, I, yeah, I, I was pretty happy I, with with those fourteen. I was very happy, and then you know, I, I just wanted to, ten. I felt like it was definitely enough. And it is nice because I feel like ten, ten or eleven songs is kind of perfect. You know, it's like, and if you think of it in terms of, you know, like here's side A, and then here's the beginning of side B. Like I think albums, whether you're buying it on vinyl or listening to an album in full, like people that think about sequence in terms of that, in terms of this arc. And having something in the middle that is like the the restart, I think that's a good way of approaching yeah. it. And I feel like you did that on this record. Oh, good, thanks. I mean, that's uh, that's good to hear because that's what I was going for. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to cut songs. You you know, you you remember what you why you started that thing. You know, but then sometimes you look back and you see the ones you're cutting. You're like, man, why was I all, all wrapped up in that you know baseline? Do you have a, without the sort of input of bandmates, did you have somebody that you trusted in terms of like, hey, what should be on this record? Well, I worked. I, mean, I know you worked with people. Uh-huh. I worked with mm-hmm. two guys, actually. Yeah. And I trust them a lot. And and uh, the, I, I, they're invaluable. I mean, they're a huge part of uh-huh. this record. And that record. was um, Richard um, and Rostam, right? No, it was uh, Paul Maroon, who's in Walkman, uh, who's right. the guitar yeah. player in the Walkman, and uh, Rostam Batmanglish, who's in uh, yeah. Vampire okay. Weekend. And they were both, you know, co-songwriters. They're they're big. And Paul was too. he he sent you? Is that kind of one of the early impetuses that he sent you was like a a piano song and and you guys heard? Yeah, he, I mean, we we had a system going. He lives mm-hmm. in New Orleans and. Uh, we, we in the later days of the Walkman, when everybody sort of moved away, we had developed kind of a system of when going back and forth over email with each other with ideas, and uh, it, it had worked out pretty well. And by the time the Walkman had decided to do our separate things, he and I had like four or five things mm-hmm. in the pipeline, 
And I thought, you know, that took like eight months to get those four or five. Like, I don't want to give up that amount of work just because it's like a little awkward. Um, so we talked about continuing to work together and we wrote a few more things. And I started working with Rostam too, which is really fun because it's the first new songwriter I've worked with in, you know, tw- ever, I guess, since, you know, I started my band like 15, 20 years and ago. And he's someone that is is quite proficient, I'm assuming, at MIDI and synth pads and orchestration, right? Oh, man. He works at a mi- – yeah, he, he sits there at the computer and he works at just like a million miles. Like the first time I was – I'd never mm-hmm. done that before. And he – I was there like recording my vocal or something and he would just like hit the keyboard just working at a million miles an hour and there'd be a song like five minutes later, you know? Did your relationship with Paul, was was he also able to approach, like, this record? Do you feel like he felt also an openness? Like, oh, now this vocabulary can be expanded and, and let's approach things differently. Um, because it... I think, yeah, hiring hiring new musicians was very exciting. I mean, we, we basically, when we, when we had our lineup, just thought about who would just be the greatest people we could mm-hmm. get. And the first people that came to mind were the people that were playing with me at Joe's mm-hmm. Pub the other night and the people that made it on the record and their friends and, but they have their own bands and, and I, you know, I was just, we were so lucky that the people said yes. And so you get someone like Morgan Henderson in there who I had met when we toured with the Fleet Foxes and he can just, he can just make anything yeah. sound good. So you can sort of just like turn him loose in the studio and then before you know, you know, things sound a little bit like the Walkman when I'm playing the guitar and singing and Paul's playing the guitar. Then you get Morgan playing the marimba or something, and you can just turn my guitar off, and it's just, you, you just, it's so great to be able to really make something that sounds different. I loved it, and I think your voice sounds beautiful on this record. And well, thanks and very much. On the Joe's Pub show, which I think they're going to insert some of that music into this podcast. I had no <laughs> you voice. You had no voice, but I, I will say Nothing. I loved that, and I know it's frustrating as a well, first of all, I guess I want to ask, like, when you're performing, you know how there's always that thing of, like, oh, that show felt amazing. Like, you have this great show, and then someone, like, your sound guy or whatever is like, oh, actually, that was not a good show. Or, you know, mm-hmm. or, like, some or right. some friend yeah. is like, oh, no, the this was too loud, or the symbols were shitty. Right. And then there's the other thing where, like, you, the show feels kind of bad or stale, and then everyone's like, oh, that was amazing. And I, what mm-hmm. what do you prefer? <laughs> Uh, um, well, it's always nice to be pleasantly surprised, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, I've probably had a lot more of the other, like, experience. I've had, I don't know. Our sound man's a real sourpuss, <laughs> so I've experienced that a lot. With Where you're like, great show, and he's like, from. actually it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know, that's, you know, that's every show for the walkman. Sometimes I think anomaly like sort of helps define and re-examine what like normal is, you know. So it's like you realize that like you want to hear deviation because then you sort of appreciate what the other thing is. And so, you know, after listening to the recorded versions of these songs and then listening to the feed from the live show, 
It's like you hear the songs in a different way. And also, it makes the live experience so unique. very unlikely that you're going to do this whole tour with your voice a little hoarse. I mean, hopefully not. But I, I thought, I thought I it know. sounded, you know, beautiful, and it brings kind of a, just a different perspective. And like, I think it's always good for the audience. I think, like, one time I saw um, the White Stripes did like this secret show at the Hideout in Chicago, and Jack White vomited, basically, like turned around, went behind oh, the man. drum kit, threw up, and then sort of came back and just said we should stop, which is probably logical. But I just thought, like, he's hating it right now. But as an audience member, mm. <laughs> what I want to see more than it's just something that's basically a mistake or, you know. Uh-huh, totally. That's the uh, the live, yeah, that's what makes the live thing so fun. I guess just a yeah. special. So I, yeah, I thought, I thought your voice sounded good. But I, I did, like, <laughs> I well, did thanks. like that when you were talking about your friend eating a taco, that you could see that from the... <laughs> That place, the the eating is just a little weird. I mean, do they need to be sitting there? Do they need to be eating in the one hour that I'm playing right there? I mean, it's just kind of a strange thing. They're, they're, you're, they're, at my foot is my friend I've known for 20 years eating taco, being served and then eating tacos and sort of looking up at me. It's just weird. Yeah, I I find that odd. Wait, um, my old band Slater Kinney, we did this tour with Pearl Jam, and they, you know, were doing those like sheds wow. like those amphitheater sheds and so you know uh-huh. we would play while the the people were like getting in their last you know hot oh, dog yeah, yeah. Oh, i know that <laughs> right i know i've been there more times i'm than sure you can, I mean, and don't you slot. feel like you're watching i literally just wanted i would just focus on one person and i would just think please mm-hmm. set your hot dog down and look at me like that's all i want i want <laughs> to i want to right. play something that moves you enough that you have to stop chewing you know, and it just yep. becomes so much about like this minutia of like trying to gauge like how much you're you're affecting something because it's weird how people. I mean, of course, this is your friend; like he's gonna eat and enjoy it. But like with people that don't care about your music, you're like, wow, you actually yeah. prefer food. You could just tune out this band <laughs> on stage right now for the <laughs> sake of like making sure that the relish is like perfectly splayed out on that bun. <laughs> I mean, don't get me started on that. I could just talk all night about that. <laughs> what um We have I mean, you know, yeah, the the hot dog hour, I mean that's 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 the Walkman hour right there. <laughs> I feel like the hot dog hour is like first of all just such a great like there should be a whole podcast called the hot dog hour that's just bands talking <laughs> about playing those crappy opening slots or like the I daytime slot and just talking about what they observe. Because fans, people in the audience think they're invisible, even in broad daylight. You know, mm-hmm. you can be. They think. Yeah, at five thirty in the afternoon, they're visible. Absolutely. They're right there, and like I do. You, what? What's one of the weirdest things that you've seen, or just not even weirdest, but just I? You must have a certain memory of like, oh yeah, and then I watched this guy do this, or who thought he was invisible. Oh man, I'm sure I have so many of those. Well, I mean, there's the time when. Um, the guy just held his middle finger up to my face, like, yeah, I guess he wanted me to see him. 
That was like, you know, he held it for the entire, from start to finish set. It was incredible. (laughs) And his girlfriend was like sort of embarrassed and she was, I actually wrote about this in the podcast that's going to be on the, I mean, in in the, um, whatever article that I wrote for the talk house. So I don't know if we want to spoil this, whatever. His girlfriend was trying to pull his arm down. She was like sort of embarrassed and trying to pull his arm down, but he sort of fought her off and just defiantly just held his middle finger up. For, you know, the whole 45-minute slot. That was, I mean, that's that was an cool. exercise routine. Like, holding your arm up for anything for that long. Like, the, the fact yeah, that he really. was like, you know what? I'm going to have a sore arm tomorrow, but it doesn't matter because I've shown this. He didn't switch <laughs> like, arms I've shown either. this man what's what. Yeah, the, the opening slot is, <laughs> yeah. is pretty weird. What What's your plan with with the solo album? Do you Are you going to do headlining shows in certain venues are you going to go out and and do festivals this summer it com- black hours comes out in like um, another uh, month right in may june, june 3rd, okay. 3rd and yeah yeah i've got a lot booked mostly headlining mm-hmm. stuff i've got a few festivals i'm a little worried about the festivals because i got that big band and i don't think any of my like sort of quieter string piano songs are gonna are gonna work on that kind of big open air stage um so I gotta figure that out. I don't know if I have a plan. Yeah, for that. well, we could we could strategize one now that involves, you know, yeah. some free hot, free dogs. hot dogs. Yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe something to 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 go for on the uh, quiet um, summer stages with your band. And you were at, you're at Vox, right? And what was yep. what? And did you like recording there? Do you did you pick that place, or did somebody recommend it, or how? Um, Rostam recommended it to me. Um, they had just Vampire Weekend had just done their last record there, and he it's like a semi private studio, so he knew the owner and got me mm-hmm. in the door. Um, the place is incredible. I, I couldn't recommend it. And where enough. did you live while you were there? Did you stay in a hotel for weeks or? We rent we Airbnb a house in Echo Park, which was lovely. I, I over the years I can't say I've ever really bonded with L.A. I, 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 you know, it's always been like a big tour stop and fun for that. But the city I've never really like seen why I love. You know, I never fell in love with it. But um, but we really had a civilized, uh, you know, lifestyle, and I, I really came to like it. Yeah, I um, I feel the same way about L.A. I think. You spend I do much time every there? once in a while, and I'm about to go to work there for a while, and it will be. I'm doing Airbnb as well. We're basically doing an ad for Airbnb now, mm-hmm. unless. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, no, that's fine. Uh, yeah. But do you? Um, good service. I good service. did you read uh, David Burns' book uh, How Music Works by chance? I did not. No, uh, well, it's like a great to. book, but he talks so much about you know music being sort of created out of site specificity you know it's sort of like depending on where people rehearse or you know shows have to change or sounds change because of you know the venue that it's played in or and I always think of like like cities are sort of the ultimate like space like that do you did sort of with LA as like the final like the veneer at the end of the record do you feel like it had any impact in terms of like a certain kind of shimmeriness or do you know what I mean or did you feel like the sensibility of the record had come alive somewhere mm-hmm. else and then this was just recording I, I, I felt like that studio was a huge had a huge role in what came, what we finished with it was this like coincidentally it was this place where 
uh, Nat King Cole and Frank and Fred Astaire and all these guys used to warm up their voices before they went across the street to CBS rec- uh, mm-hmm. CBS radio. And it was this room that it was built in like the 20s and the guy has kept it exactly like that. And, you know, I was we were going in there doing this, hopefully doing songs that were inspired by that and these big orchestrated things. And it was sort of like a magical coincidence. Um, the city itself, I, I don't know. I, you know, I've, I, I don't know. That's a tough, I, it probably did because it was, we were having such a nice time being there and maybe that's why we had a great time. You know, that helped us have such a fun time making the record. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, people have always asked me if New York has been an influence on the music I make here. And I, I don't know the answer, but I just do know that I, I've never been able to write music anywhere else. Maybe the city is the thing that makes you neurotic enough that I can't stop writing music or something. And I worry that if I move away, I wouldn't be able to do it anywhere else. But I don't, I've never been able to specifically put my finger on what, you know, how it, you know, it's a big, I don't know. When you're actually living in it, it's kind of hard to see how the direct connection works. something to be said about feeling like you have to prove it again you know and and anytime anytime you restart or you dismantle something you have to prove it and it's hard I think once you reach a level of of comfort and it doesn't even necessarily mean financial comfort it could just be you know that that comfort of knowing who the people you play with are and knowing what everything is going to feel like and and writing from Mm -hmm. that can be very detrimental I think trying to create from that place and also I think from an audience perspective, they start to have those same assumptions of like, this is what you're capable of. This is you'll never defy our expectations in our expectations in, in any number of ways, which can just which exactly. feels so disheartening. Like that just it's almost like a gutting feeling. There's nothing that makes you feel older than just feeling like somebody knows what you're capable of and that you'll never go outside that box. Right. It, it just loses all of its excitement. It's just gone. The reason you started. Yeah. And it. there's something so. I think there is a timelessness to to redefinition, but in order to really redefine, I think you have to make people a little bit uncomfortable. And I think as much as people were sad that the Walkman broke up and probably made them feel uncomfortable, it's like you're kind of forcing them to, to look at you in a new way, which I think can only be good. I hope so. <laughs> well, I guess it could, all, it could be bad. Too, well, right? It could go. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's definitely on any stability we may have had is gone. You know, it definitely feels like open, wide yeah, open. Yeah, but I, I think undermining yourself as an artist is a, is an important part of the process. Um, I agree. So maybe we should end there with you not knowing whether it's going to be good or bad. But I predict, <laughs> I predict it will be good. Well, thanks very much, Carrie. It's really nice to meet you. I'm a really big fan of your show. And so oh, well, thanks, life. Hamilton. I'm a fan of your music, and I think you have a wonderful voice. And I think that Black Hours is a beautiful beautiful album thanks all right well take care and uh you too nice to meet you you later okay see you later bye-bye